This event was recorded live at the 2019 Edinburgh International Book Festival, a 17-day celebration of words and stories welcoming authors and audiences from around the globe. You can hear more events by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Acast, and watch event videos at edbookfest.co.uk and on YouTube at edbookfest. That plan. What, 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 is your, what, what is your plan? And I'm going, there is no plan. Did you read the book? So, and I guess the, the theme of, of, of it and the way that we within the field, so my, in my actual day job, are actually thinking about this, is that while, yes, eating too much and not moving enough is going to influence your body weight, clearly, of course, because it's, because it's actually physics, okay, that there is actually a lot of biological variation in how we respond to food, in influencing our feeding behavior, okay? So the question is not how we actually become um, um, fat or obese or skinny or, or average, but why do we behave differently around food, okay? And that is, 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 is going to be, A, hugely biologically influenced, and B, Okay, it's going to differ from, it's going to be, diff therefore, it's going to differ from person to person. Now, if everyone interacts differently with food, I'll give you an example, okay? So, um, my wife loves chocolate. She absolutely loves chocolate. So, she bans me from having it in the house because she says that if I have it in the house, what, what's going to happen is I'm going to eat it. And that's fair. That, that, that's fair enough. You know, she'll track it down like a stinger missile. So, please, please don't have it in the house. Whereas, me and chocolate... Ah, you know, I don't not like chocolate. I'll eat. Oh, here we go. I'll eat. <coughs> pardon me. I'll eat it if I'll eat it if it's there. But I won't hunt it down. Pork scratchings, which, by the way, I find out does not exist north of the border. But anyway, that's 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 that's, that's, that's fine. Um, I have a, a, a problem for it. So it's a slightly now. If the government suddenly decides one day, and this is the point, if the government suddenly decides one day that in order to cure obesity, we're going to ban chocolate. Okay, well, it's only going to work for 50% of the people in my household. Well, a third. My son is, is, is like me. Whereas, you know, yes, my, my wife will eat less chocolate and perhaps lose a little bit of weight. Not that she needs to lose weight. She's not here. I don't want to get slapped. <laughs> but it won't work for me. And, and, and slightly facetious, but that is the point, right? So worked within there, there is the issue of why does my wife prefer something sweeter, whereas I prefer something fattier? Okay, and I think we all know who, who we are. People who prefer slightly savory stuff versus slightly uh, uh, fatty stuff. There is an issue of responding to stress. Why do some people respond to stress? By eating, and this is not tiger stress. Everyone responds to tiger stress in the same way, which is to run away, otherwise you get eaten. But I'm talking about work stress, exam stress. Why do some people, and when, once again, we all know who we are, respond to stress by eating, whereas some people respond to stress by not eating? It's exactly the same hormone. It is cortisol, yet we respond in diametrically opposite, opposite ways. Our reaction to, 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 to food has powerful um, genetic influences, and this is, actually, this is actually part of them. So I can actually just jump um, through just the book. Okay, so while I have no plan, as I was writing the book, what actually emerged were a number of what I call truths, okay? Um, based in, anchored in biological facts. So by its very definition, are not fatty, because I, I, I'd hope to at least convince you today that they're anchored in some way to biological fact. And I've called these, rather narcissistically, yo truths, but we just ignore them. <laughs> we, we ignore them. And I'm going to structure today's uh, uh, talk into these, into these seven truths. I'll, I won't spend an equal amount of time on all of them. I'll, I'll focus on a couple of them. But I'll, I'll just um, um, let, you know, let you know what they are. Okay? So there are seven, seven of these yo truths, and I'm going to talk about them today. So the first one, 
look, the, the thing about losing weight, okay, which is what actually most of us are talking about when we go on a diet. True, you could have maybe irritable bowel, maybe you've certainly suddenly become diabetic, maybe you're worried about your blood pressure. But for the vast majority of us, when we talk about diets, we're talking about weight loss. And what is the problem with weight loss? I think, I think the, most of you, it is, it's not easy. A, it's not easy to lose the weight, but even that is the easiest bit of it, and it certainly is not easy to keep the weight off. Okay, it's not. And I guess that's your truth number one. It ain't supposed to be easy. And it ain't supposed to be easy because our brain makes it very, very, very difficult. This is what I was talking to you about as we were trying to find a slide presentation. Um, in a sense where clearly you have to eat more, that this is the first law of thermodynamics. The first law of thermodynamics, you can't magic energy from somewhere and you can't magic the energy away. You have to eat more than you burn in order to, to, to gain weight. But where the biological variation, and when you read biological variation, where the genetic variation lies is in how we actually handle uh, um, our behavior with food. And we now know from twin and adoption studies, okay, so they are identical twins, 100% well, of DNA material, and non-identical twins who share 50% of DNA material, like you would with your own brother or sister, for that matter, your folks. And you are able then to take any given trait, um, um, you know, rate of toenail growth, uh, uh, presence of hair, okay, freckles, and actually ask the question, well, how much um, variation is there if you share all the genes, if you're identical twins, versus if you share half the genes, if, you are, if you're non-identical identical twins. And if you do that, then the heritability of body weight is actually at around 70%. Okay? So it is not, it's not zero, but it's pretty high. It's 70%. So to put things in perspective, the heritability of height, which I think no one here would argue has a genetic influence, is probably around 85%. So it's not as high, but certainly approaching that of height. So what do we then know? What, has, what have these genetics actually informed us about it? Well, your brain needs to know two pieces of information in order to influence your food intake. First, it needs to know how much fat you have and why, because how much fat you have is how long you would last in the wild without any food. If food stopped today, how long would you actually be? So important integer to hold in your head. And secondly, it needs to know what you have just eaten and what you're currently eating. Okay, and these signals are going to come from your gut. And what we know now is that there are genetic modifiers that run throughout the entire process. Several hundred genes actually play a role here, some of which influence the sensitivity of our brain to these signals. So, for example, our brain, for some of us, could be sensing, if, say I was carrying 20 kilos of fat, which I think is about right, um, but my brain was sensing only 18 kilos of fat, okay? So now it's going to think, oh my God, I thought with 20 kilos of fat, why is this 18? It then drives you to eat more in order to try and make, you, make it up to 20 kilos, even though you're already carrying 20 kilos. Equally, if you've eaten 1,000 calories for a meal, for example, but your brain only senses 800, you see where I'm going here, it will drive you to eat more, even though you and your partner may be eating exactly the same meal and facing exactly the same thing, but yet some of us are going to be more hungry all of the time. For some people, it's not easy to actually lose weight. And even if you were skinny, like Kylie Minogue and with a six-pack and many... I have a one-pack, right? For, 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 for doing that. If you were hungry, okay, it is always more difficult to say no. If you lose any weight, your brain hates it because it considers it a reduction in your likelihood of survival. So it will always make losing weight difficult. If anyone tries to sell you an effortless way to lose weight, they are lying. Lying, okay? If anyone says, if you magically follow this magical approach in order to magically lose the weight, okay? But if you don't succeed, it's because you didn't do it properly, they're lying. 
it ain't supposed to be easy to lose weight because your brain makes it difficult. Then there's the se second thing over here. Yo truth number two. Eat a little less of everything. This is the kind of advice that's not going to make me any money, but that's okay, right? It's otherwise known as um, moderation, okay? For, for, it's otherwise, the problem with moderation are a couple of things. A, it's boring, <laughs> which, which it is, which it is, and it's difficult. Okay, I mean, let me give you an example. Okay, when you go and buy pasta, okay, here's the, here's the annoying, irritating thing. Many other things annoy me, but this one in particular. Serving size for pasta comes at 75 grams. I don't know anyone who eats 75 grams of pasta, but let's just leave that alone, okay? But they sell the packs in 500 grams, okay? So now here, so you've got to do the math. How many 75 grams fits into 500 grams? So you end up, you know what, pouring the whole pack in. That's what happens, okay? So sometimes maybe it's easier not to, not to, have, it, not to have it in the house. But um, I could spend the entire talk just talking about this. But I just wanted to focus on a couple of aspects in particular where a lot of people okay, today, remove entire food groups, entire food groups from their diet, okay, without any clinical reason for the sake of healthiness. I mean, we've seen this, these signs out there, gluten-free, lactose-free, GMO-free. And there are going to be clinical reasons why some people have to remove that. If you're celiac, for example, please stay away from, stay away from gluten. If you're Chinese, that's not a clinical reason, but if you were. Um, um, so I'm lactose intolerant, and so I stay away from, from, from lactose. But people actually... You, you know, remove foods from their diet um, for no rhyme or reason whatsoever. I want to just briefly, very, very briefly, touch on two things which are hot topics at the moment. Giving up dairy, okay, and giving up meat. Not only meat, but actually being vegan, giving up any meat-based products. Now, is giving up dairy and giving up um, a meat animal-based products in of itself, per se, healthier for you? I'll just, just touch on a couple of, uh, a couple of little points that we can, that we can actually, like, actually go on. Now, just focusing on milk, do, did you realize that 20% of the dairy market today, okay, particularly the milk market, has not emerged from an animal? Okay, so 20% so of the milks and cheeses that are actually available are plant-based. Now, there are some which have been around forever, like soy milk. I'm Chinese, I've drunk soy milk for, for, forever and ever, although we would never have called it milk, we call it a broth, and I certainly wouldn't have poured it in coffee. But once again, we'll leave that alone. But there are some amazing things here. Quinoa milk. How do you milk a quinoa? You know, I'm never entirely, I'm never entirely sure how, 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 that, how, how that actually happens. In fact, now, you can go to somewhere like Tesco's and have a, a free from Christmas. Please enjoy your Christmas of nothing with us today. You know, and it's, it's, really, it's really quite amazing. Okay, so, so dairy products. Is it better? Is it is, there, is dairy bad for you? What are, what are some of the arguments? Well, some of the arguments are that um, we're not designed to drink another animal's milk. Okay, so this is an argument we hear. And we're not designed to drink milk as adults, which is a, which is a very, very good point. Lactose intolerance is actually an interesting concept. Okay? In fact, I think it's a misnomer. And it's a misnomer because the vast majority of mammals, in fact, all mammals, can drink milk as a baby, right? By its very definition, we are mammals. But... As we grow older, in humans in particular, as we go past puberty and as we get into adulthood, actually most humans begin to lack the ability to digest, to digest milk, particularly to digest lactose, which is, the, which is the sugar found in milk. So how does this happen? Well, mammals cannot absorb lactose. Lactose is a sugar. It needs to break it down, and it's done using an enzyme called lactase. Now, lactase is, sits around the gut, 
which is where, which is where the, the digestion of milk actually occurs. Now, in childhood, lactase is turned on. But in adulthood, suddenly a protein comes upstream of lactase, turns it off, and like me, you suddenly can't drink uh, a milk. So why would this have occurred? Okay, why, 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 what is the evolutionary reason? Probably to move university-aged Johnny off the boob, you know, to, and, and, and make room, and there's limited space, and make room, and make room for, 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 for smaller Johnny. And I think this probably is true, okay, because, you know, to kind of give them the motivation to eat something, eat something solid. Now, everything changed with the domestication of large mammals, um, in particular ruminants, so cows, mm, sheep, goats. Um, when people begin to realize, hang on a second, if we drank the milk of said animal, instead of just eating the animal for meat, we would get a lot of calories, a lot, a, lot, a lot more calories. Remembering that we never had enough food, except for the past 30 to 40 years, we never had enough food, you know, this extra source of calories would be huge. I mean, there are some paleo, what do they call them? Um, paleo agriculturists, that's what they're called, who actually, um, is a real job, who, who uh, estimated that a Neolithic cow, okay, which would, which would produce six to 700 liters of milk, okay, if you actually drank the milk, and then ate the cow, you would get 10 times the number of calories than if you just ate the cow in of, it, in, in of itself. And so what happened was early pastoralists, okay, the lab, I'm focusing on Northern Europe because this is where we're standing at the moment, okay, suddenly, about 7,500 years ago, a mutation was carried into Europe, which sat upstream of the lactase gene, preventing, preventing the protein, which turns off lactase, from binding. So it doesn't bind. Okay, therefore, you can drink milk um, all the way to adulthood. 95% of Northern Europeans, certainly around the Scandinavians and in, and, in, uh, and in Northern Europe, can drink milk as adults. And every single one of you, okay, who can drink has exactly that same mutation, preventing the binding of it. Okay, so you guys adapted, you guys meaning the large, not, not all of you are clearly, but have adapted to this new source of food. Okay, in order in order to do it, and are then able to drink milk as adults. So the latte or the soy latte. Okay, and I guess we have to remember that lactose is lactose, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, that's that's that, that's what it is. It's a sugar, and we break it down the same way, whether or not it comes from human milk, egg, cow milk, goat milk, sheep milk, etc., etc. Okay, if you can and have the genetic adaptation to break down milk then milk per se is not going to be bad for you. Sure, if you eat too much cheese and have too much, there is a, there is a waistline issue, okay? But that is, a, that is another problem, but milk per se is not actually, actually bad, bad for you, okay? And, and this is the, the other interesting thing is, um, this is me, okay? And one of the things which I do uh, is present uh, a doc documentaries for the, for the BBC. And I do, and I'm one of the presenters on Trust Me, I'm a Doctor. And I was asked to, to study or actually check and investigate whether or not being vegan is healthier for you per se. Now, there are going to be any number of ethical and environmental issues for why people may actually give up, um, um, give up eating animal-based products. And these are all entirely legitimate. And I'm, but because this was a health program, I focused on the health element, and I'll just focus on the health element, on, on the health element um, um, today. So just briefly, you know, is being vegan you know, better for you per se? Well. It depends what you're doing, right? I mean, clearly, if I spent the entire time eating chips and crisps, no one would have thought, and it's vegan. You know, I, I even found this wonderful product, bacon rashes, okay, savory and crunchy, a classic snack. I didn't know this. But here's the, here's the thing. It's, there's no, for those of you who can't read it here, it says no artificial flavors or colorings. Mm -hmm. 
and entirely vegan. Oh yes, okay, okay. As it turns out, it is no artificial bacon uh, uh, flavorings. It's used like paprika or smoked turmeric or whatever it is in, in, order, in, order, to, in order to do it. So I, to cut a long story short, I didn't eat it, end up eating chips and crisps. I ended up going on a plant-based diet. Okay? And a plant-based diet is where you're eating more whole foods, you're eating lentils and beans and what have you. And what, ha what actually ended up happening? So two, two things. Okay? I ended up losing a hell of a lot of weight. I lost four kilos uh, um, um, in, in 29 days, not that I was counting, and my cholesterol levels dropped. And so I guess the question, however, and so I'm the poster boy for, for, for vegan health things. Oh my God, let's, go, let's, all, let's all go vegan. But why did I lose weight? I, I lost weight because vegan food is a lot bulkier than, than animal-based food. You've got to eat a lot of lentils and a lot of chewing, okay, in order to make a steak, okay? And I, that's, that's the, so I lost weight because I absorbed less calories. Why did my cholesterol, but that's not the only magic, the, the, but that's, there is no magical vegan diet that makes you lose weight. You lose weight on a vegan diet because you end up eating less calories, in particular a plant-based a, a plant diet. Okay? For me, it was just a very useful strategy for actually losing, for losing weight. Cholesterol levels. Why did my cholesterol levels drop? Well, primarily because I stopped eating saturated fats, okay, which, is, which actually comes primarily from animal-based products. I understand that there are going to be things like coconut in which there is high saturated fats, but I know that from my own personal diet that most of it came from meat. And so that is the reason why my, uh, my cholesterol levels drop. But I would have achieved exactly the same um, um, results if I had switched to a pescatarian diet, which means largely fish, because fish is full of unsaturated, unsaturated fats. Okay? And the second, and, and one very, very big but my cholesterol levels do happen to be sensitive to diet. Whereas there are going to be a few of you out there, quite a few of you out there, whose cholesterol levels are going to be insensitive to what you eat, completely insensitive because of your genes. Like they're going to be set low, a medium, whoop de do for you, or some of, them, uh, some, some of you are going to have cholesterol levels that are set high. And no dietary change is going to drive that down. You're probably likely to have to go on a statins in, 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 in order to drop them. My point is I could go on Instagram right now and actually say, go on a vegan diet, you know, I've lost weight, and, and et cetera, et cetera. You have to understand your biology before you actually go on some of these, some of these diets. Now, I'm about to run out of time. So, so three and four, okay, are linked together and involve a prop. First of all, the food that takes longer to, this is three, food that takes longer to digest generally makes you feel fuller. And in order to understand this, you need to understand the wondrous item that is known as the food to poop tube. Okay, that's not the scientific term for it. It's the gastrointestinal tract. But here's where the... the, the I don't know if any of you have ever seen a life-size knitted human gut. <laughs> I have the pattern for anyone who, for anyone who, who cares. Okay? I didn't knit, knit this. But this is otherwise known as the food to poop tube. So this is the food bit, right? Okay. I won't let anyone hold either end of it. So, and, I, and so this, in all of us, plus or minus a couple of feet, depending if you're six foot five or if you're five foot. Okay. But broadly speaking, this is the length of the gut. It's longer than the stage, as you can see, origami into all of us. And the next two truths, okay, the next two truths probably explain how every single diet that works, works. Okay, some diets don't work because it's entirely BS, and we can talk about some of those. But the vast majority of diets that work, in the short term, for some people, work using these two principles. The first principle is the longer something takes to digest, 
the further down the gut it will go, resulting in the release of different hormones, and hormones from the gut tend to make you feel full. This makes you feel fuller, you eat less, you lose weight. Let me give you some example, one example. The Atkins diet, okay? I think the Atkins diet is like the granddaddy of all the, of all the diets that are, that, 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 that are actually out there. And it's famously low carb. People are counting their carbs, counting their carbs. But it's not actually about the carbs per se, it's about what you add in instead. And when you're actually on an Atkins diet, you actually end up eating more protein. And protein, a calorie of protein makes you feel fuller than a calorie of fat, than a calorie of carb in that order. Why? Because protein chemically takes the longest to digest, it travels further down the gut, it makes you feel fuller. And this is how, okay, this is how all of these diets work. So the low-carb, high-fat diet, paleo diet, high-protein diets, as, as I'm talking, the carnivore diet, all of them work because, because protein takes longer to digest, making you feel fuller, you eat less, you lose weight. Everything else you read on the websites, BS, okay? It is because of that. Then the second principle, which is absolutely critical to, to think about, is don't blindly, oh, there we go, don't blindly count calories, okay? And what do I mean, what do I mean by this? And I'll probably end this here, and we can deal the other two uh, uh, when we actually, when we actually in the discussion section. But why not, okay? So let me, let me tell so, so what's a calorie? A calorie is the amount of energy you need to raise one liter of water, one degree Celsius at, at sea level. Okay, so it's a unit of energy. So all calories in that sense are equal, except that we cannot absorb all the calories within the food. Let me give you some examples, okay? We have to consider what I call caloric availability, which is the amount of calories you can absorb from a food versus the total amount of calories stuck in the food. 100 calories of sugar. If you eat that, you will pretty much get 100 calories of sugar because it's our base fuel, okay? This is 100 calories. You go to the Tesco's and just look at the back of the pack. If, however, you had 100 calories of sweet corn, okay, and then looked in a loo the next day, it's clear you haven't absorbed anywhere close to 100 calories of sweet corn, okay? Now, if, however, you take sweet corn, um, ground, you know, dry it, grind it into a cornmeal, and make a corn tortilla, and then have 100 calories of that, suddenly you get a lot more than 100, uh, uh, a lot more calories than with the sweet corn. Yet, when you go to the supermarket and look at the back of the pack, you see 100 calories of sugar, 100 calories of sweet corn, and 100 calories of corn tortilla. They're all 100 calories, but yet, they mean entirely nothing in terms of the number of calories you actually physically absorb, okay? And we have to remember the back of the pack calories are the total number of the calories within the food, never what you can actually absorb. Let me give you another example, okay, steak. Okay, now if you cook a steak medium rare, rare, it may, maybe takes four to five minutes. Okay, if you want to murder the steak and well done, well, there we go, 12 minutes. But if we take exactly the same 400 calories of steak, for example, if we mince it up, boil it for two hours in a tomato sauce, layer it into a lasagna, cook it for another two hours, freeze the lasagna, because who eats the whole lasagna, right? And then, and then the next day, heat it again for an hour, all of a sudden, that exactly the same 400 calories of meat becomes more calorically available, okay? So now, don't get me wrong, I love steak, I love lasagna. My point is, blindly counting calories makes absolutely no sense. You, you, you know, if, say you were on some diet which, made, which meant that you have to do 400 calories for lunch, let's just imagine. Well, then it matters if you're eating 400 calories of sweet corn or 400 calories of sugar. 
Okay, that's slightly extreme, but it matters if you're eating 400 calories of something which has been more processed and cooked longer versus something which is not. And that's, this is my point, where you just shouldn't be blindly counting calories. And so my last point to make here with regards to caloric availability is this is actually how the vast majority of these uh, um, diets, but there we go, these diets actually work. So for example, I talked to you about why I lost weight when being a vegan, okay? Well, because the food that I ate was far less calorically available, right? It was less energy dense. So this is the reason why I lost weight. It's the same for any number of things out there, including, including the Mediterranean diet. So those two principles, food that takes longer to digest makes you feel fuller, okay? A, and B, caloric availability. And every, just go next time the new year comes along and you have a new year, new me, new you diet, okay? Just try and put yourself in a position and understand, well, does the food take longer to digest? Is it higher in protein, higher in fiber? Is it less calorically available? If it is, the chances are they'll probably work, okay? If it isn't, then there's no good reason why some of these diets will actually work. So I will jump through this and go to the ending and then we can dis discuss this. So what happens if you need to lose weight? Because look, at the end of the day, <coughs> pardon me, at the end of the day, some of us are carrying too much fat. And I'll end on one point. So the, the, the why is carrying too much fat bad for you? Okay? It's actually, people think, well, it's because you're too fat. Ah, okay? Now, it's actually a relatively complex answer. And, but simply put, we misunderstand what happens when we actually gain weight and lose weight. People think that when you gain weight, you gain fat cells, okay? and then you get more fat cells. This is not true. Fat cells are like balloons, okay? and they get bigger and they get smaller. And when we gain weight, they get bigger. And when we lose weight, they get smaller. The safest place to store fat is in your fat cells, as they do this, because that's their professional job. It's when they're not in the fat cells, and they go into your muscle, your liver, other places, that is when you tilt into disease. But what is interesting is all of our fat cells expand to differing amounts, so individually, okay? So that some of us can store a lot more fat before we become ill than others. Our fat expendability differs. So famously, South Asians or East Asians, we can't carry our weight as well, we can't store as much fat before tilting into, in, in, into disease. Whereas Polynesians, for example, can get an awful lot larger before they tilt into disease. So, when we carry too much fat, we will become ill, but how much fat we can carry, that is going to be down to our individual biology. Okay? And my last point is everything in moderation, including moderation. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Hello, Ruth. Hello. I've got a really, really deeply technical scientific question for you. Yes, ma'am. Why do lettuce leaves not taste like baked beans? <laughs> because if they did, we wouldn't have a problem with all of this. If they, if they did, they wouldn't be good. I think <laughs> the main problem with lettuce leaves is that they don't boring. have a lot. They're, well, they're boring. I don't know. If you're a rabbit, I guess they're not boring. But um, the, the main problem is because they don't have a lot of ca caloric availability is very, very, very low in a lettuce leaf. Or a celery stick. If we focus on celery sticks, famously, they're supposed to be negative calorie. They're not. But a medium-sized celery stick only has six available calories from, from it. Um, whereas something else that is higher in, in, in density, it could be, you could be talking about a fruit, 
like mango, which is high in sugar, that's a lot more calories uh, um, per, per gram of mango than compared to a lettuce. Or if you then switch to something like dairy or eggs or meat, you get a lot more calories. And so I think it's just being more efficient so that for every given gram of food we eat, because we never had enough food, remember this, uh, we would get more calories. You get, more, you get the same number of calories for less work or more calories for equal amount of work, whichever way you want to That's right. No, I get that. It's a taste factor, though, that I'm, I'm getting at. Because it's much, much easier, I think, to eat less of things that taste nice. But, 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 but why the taste? Right? So what have we evolved? Because at the end of the day, when a rabbit... Well, you tell when, me. When a rabbit, <laughs> because, because a rabbit will eat lettuce till the cows come home, right? And they will enjoy lettuce. Okay, because it, that's what it eats as a herbivore, and, and so it really, really enjoys it. Whereas our taste is set up, so uh, particularly we are omnivores, we eat both, both, both vegetables and meat. So it, it attracts to our taste rather than, necessarily, rather than necessarily to all living beings' taste. So for us, it just so happens that lettuce is not worth the energy that, that, that it takes to eat. Um, don't tell your mum this, right? They're not worth the energy, whereas chips are. And, and in fact, if you actually go and ask, would a child ever pay, pick lettuce over chips? No. Would certain adults ever pick a lettuce over no, chips? No, well, no, no, too, but there we go. But, but, that's, but that's the reason why. So in other words, the fl- taste, yep. I think we have to look from the perspective of who. And we're looking at it from the perspective of us, and we can't understand why the rabbit will, eat the, will, will prefer to now, eat lettuce. I mean, you, you've talked a bit uh, in this and indeed in the book. Uh, the book is... It's one of these books that you think, um, because it's written by a scientist, it's not going to be accessible. Trust me, it's a brilliant read. Anyway, one of the things that uh, comes out in the book is the fact that there is no silver bullet to weight loss Mm -hmm. for all the reasons you've just articulated. But but what I don't understand is why there are so many charlatans out there who are still making shed loads out of money trying to sell silver bullets that don't exist. I think because they're taking advantage of a human foible. And a human foible, all of us, this is, is true, is we like easy answers. We all like these. Who, who likes, who, you know, we like it through black or white because it's just a lot easier to plan our day. It is, it just is. Whereas we're now stuck in a topic which is not easy. And because the topic is not easy, and the answer is, well, is this good for me? Whatever it is, is this good for me? It depends. And that is going to be the real answer. I don't know you. I don't know your biology. It depends. Whereas if you're able to say it is not good for you, right, and just say it confidently with passion, okay, and, then, and, then, and particularly if you're pretty and have six packs, right, then suddenly you say, oh, that's a very, it's a far more attractive message to, 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 to follow and to be able to uh, appreciate than it is to say that this is grey and this is, that's the reason why. Because, because they are, I don't know if they're being malevolent, uh, uh, you know, necessarily. Well, they're I selling just, snake oil, so they're... Yeah, but I... Okay, okay. I think there are some people who, who probably are selling snake oil and knowing that they're selling snake oil. Whereas the vast majority... Maybe I'm being overly generous here, but I think the vast majority of these Instagram or whatever gram gurus that are actually out there probably did make some dietary change, whatever the dietary change is, and it probably did help them. Okay, because it followed the, those two, some of those principles which I talked to you about. And so they say, so look, 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 look at me, I'm skinny and pretty, and because I followed the uh, uh, X. So I think they, it really probably did work for them. So I don't think they're lying per se, but they're trying to expand that anecdote, which it is, that's what it is, an anecdote, and saying that now everybody, if you do what I do, you have the same results as me. Um, and that is where it is, is, is not the truth, and that is where that, that's not what happens. Well, what you've said, which I thought was very interesting, is that a lot of these um, fake diets and, and, and fake prospectus uh, to diet, a lot of them have got start off with a kernel of truth. That's right. And then on that kernel of truth is, is, is built a whole lot of pseudoscience. 
sort of post-truth dieting. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, 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 when, so when, when something works, so for example, veganism, which is uh, or plant-based diet, which is famous, it's, it's huge. It's one of the growing, in fact, the largest growing food trend at, uh, at the moment. Even Burger King, for Pete's sake, are going to sell these impossible Whoppers, these, these, uh, these, these um, you know, plant-based diet patties um, that, that are actually out there. And I guess the, the, the point is, it, I forgot my point, but I guess, I guess the... <laughs> Sorry, I was thinking about the Whopper. Just tell me why, because you're absolutely right, veganism, which um, not so very many years ago was kind of way out there, is now relatively mainstream. It's mainstream. You can go to any given given pub. Oh, my God, you can go to the smallest village and the smallest pub, and now you have to squint at the bottom for the legend. VF, DF, uh, uh, GF, all kinds of Fs. And and then you have to then look at the sideline with my glasses, trying to understand it, even in the smallest pubs. Exactly, it's now become, now become mainstream. Because people think it's healthier. Which... So the kernel of truth is we probably we eat too much meat as a, as a society. This is true. Okay? Does this mean all of us need to suddenly become vegan? Well, I think it suits some people, and for some people, uh, uh, it's, it's something to, to go. I think all of us need to probably eat 10% to 20% less meat, <laughs> or even slightly more, rather than no meat at all. But I guess this is the point where it, the kernel of truth is being vegan will help you lose weight. Not because it's magical, because you eat less calories. That's a, is, is a classic example. It, may, it will drop the, the, the uh, cholesterol levels of some people, including me, but not for, not for everybody. But it bleeds into the climate change argument as well, of course. Of course it does. And, and of course it does. And, and the fact that, as, as I said, there's going to be health claims, there's going to be climate change claims, and there are going to be any number of things that are there. But all of it is complex. Because equally, if all of us suddenly went vegan at once, would the, the current structures in place, the, the, the agricultural structures, would they actually be able to feed everyone? That's the question. Okay, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm, I'm not an agriculturalist, so I don't know really the, the, the answer. But it is a complex argument which needs to be had, society needs to hold, uh, have it, but not on the basis of pseudoscience. I think we will make bad decisions if we're not actually taking the evidence. And some of the evidence may not be what I want to hear or what you want to hear or what most of us want to hear, but if that's the evidence, then that's, that's what we've got to follow. And people who do pseudoscience and are trying to sell the easy answer, okay, are never going to achieve the complexity and so therefore the right answer that we need to get to eventually. Now, I want to let the audience in, but there's one uh, area we haven't... I mean, you've talked a lot about food and about guts, um, but we haven't really talked about the other half of the equation, the exercise half, and there's a a beautiful quote in the book which I'm going to share with the audience. um, um, Dr. Yeo says, Is it not a weird thing for a significant chunk of the population to drive to a gym... Maybe take an escalator or elevator up or down a couple of floors, only to get on a treadmill or a stationary bike. It's, it's a weird thing. It is, it, 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 is, it is an absolute weird thing to do. I mean, the, the, a, a couple of points, I guess, to take away. I mean, why, exercise as a construct, okay, actually is very, very recent. Because in the past, when we actually had largely, for most of the people, so not for super rich people, but just for most people, if we had manual jobs, man, and, and most of us had manual, or even when you were washing clothes or sewing, everything, okay, by, by hand, why would you do extra exercise in the evening? You'd sit there as still as possible, okay? I mean, as far as far. And I think this is it. We evolved to sit as still as possible during the night to not waste any energy. Um, and so, but now that we are still as possible even at work now, so we actually have to, to exercise. So that's the first thing. So it's a new, it's a new concept. Um, is it useful for losing weight, though? I mean, this is, the, this is the $64 million question in many ways. And, and what actually turns out is that exercise per se is not particularly good for losing weight if you don't fix the food intake element of it, okay? 
Um, not, not because, you know, the, the physics is still there. But I guess the one example to take is, look, if I had a Mars bar and I was committed, I could probably eat it in 90 seconds. <laughs> so, and a Mars bar is, what, 250 calories. It will always take you half an hour on a treadmill to burn off those 90 seconds on the lips, the hips, you know, they're saying. But that's true. So the numbers are always going to be against you. We are evolved to eat a lot more calories than we can actually burn off. We are, we are efficient creatures. It is, however, useful for helping maintain weight loss. So in other words, if after you've lost the weight and you need to try and keep, keep the weight off, exercise is particularly useful. And even if it doesn't help you keep weight off or actually, um, or, or actually help you lose weight, nothing replaces the benefits of exercise. I just want to make sure I get that out there. You can't take a pill to, to replicate exercise. Exercise is good for you even if you do not lose a single ounce of weight. Exercise. On that dispiriting note... Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. <coughs> um, just one other thing, though, before we go to the audience. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, this is, this is quite profound, I think. You've said not eating when you're not hungry is easy. Thin people are not morally superior. I love this bit. Thin people are not morally superior with the willpower of forged steel. They just feel a little less hungry, so they get full up more easily. It requires no effort. So... The corollary of that, I guess, is that some people, or some people, as you said right at the beginning of your talk, for some people it's always going to be a little more difficult to lose weight because of their impetus to eat more will, is inbred. That's right. It's, 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 so, I mean, my, my statement that I always make, which is controversial, and, and, and I grant this, is that obesity, in fact, let's not even deal with obesity. Let's deal with body weight. Body weight is not a choice. Now, obesity just happens to be one end of the spectrum, being skinny and being average size. It's a, it's, it's a spectrum, okay? It's not a choice. Now, but I, let me just caveat this. Clearly, it's, the cho it's my choice if I choose to eat the cookie or not, and I appreciate that, all right? But remember, we don't gain weight overnight. We gain weight over a year, over a few months. This is when you then lo lo lose and actually gain weight. So if someone is slightly more driven towards food, for any number of reasons. If, say, for example, I felt slightly hungry all the time because my brain is slightly less sensitive to those signals I'm telling you about, then actually, say, 5% less sensitive so that I eat 5% more or every single day at every single meal, or I find it 5% more difficult to say no. Just think about that. 5% more difficult to say no every single meal, where, yes, you can say no, but one times out of every 10, you don't say no, okay, compared to someone who says no all of the time. Therefore, we differ in body size. Therefore, we differ in body shape. Is it then truly a choice? Is it a choice if the dice is actually weighted against us? So I don't believe that body weight is a choice. I think clearly the environment has to be there and we have to eat in order to, to gain weight. But if we're more susceptible to that environment, if we react to the environment differently between us, between you and your husband, between you and your wife, between you and your child, and you're therefore different weights, then is it really a choice? I don't think it is. You can tell why I like this book, can't you? Um, <laughs> We're going to have the lights up and take some questions from the audience now, if we could, please. I'm not sure how many mics we've got. We've got one there. We've got another one. Nope. You're going to have to be really athletic. Who's going to start us off? Somebody up there and then somebody in the front. In my youth, a long time ago, I used to do a lot of walking, and I walked all around mo most days. When I was walking, my weight was fine. As soon as I stopped, I, then I put on the weight. Then I got married. Then I had this lovely wife that fed me. Lovely lots of stuff. And again, when I did the thing of walking, the, all that mass disappeared. I think that fits in with what you're trying to say. Yes, absolutely. So, so clearly, clearly, you know, here, here's what, what, what happens. 
when we actually, there's a, there's, a, there's a thing where some people, when they exercise, they feel hungrier. Other people don't feel particularly hungry when, 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 when they exercise, but then don't change the amount of food they eat, whether or not they exercise. And so that would be the scenario, where clearly if you're walking and eating the similar amount of food, then the walking is going to take away the calories from, from, from a physics perspective, whereas when you stop that, you suddenly, you suddenly gain weight. Now, the, the, the misses appearing in the situation feeding you, therefore suddenly you don't have to make as much effort to get food. You don't have to, you don't have to either cook it yourself or do whatever, or do whatever it is. You know, so therefore, absolutely right. So, and, but as that, it's going to be an environment that's personal to you, whereas there are going to be other people who actually, when they walk, suddenly feel ravenously hungry, and then after having a walk, think that, oh, I'm now going to have this 16 muffins because I burnt off <laughs> half a muffin worth of calories. You know, and I think that's also tr true where a lot of people overestimate how many calories they actually burn when they exercise and when they stop to actually eat more than they have actually burnt off. But depending on who you are. Lady in the front. Do you inherit your metabolic rate? Ah. So, um, yes, you do. Now, what is interesting is that of the several hundred genes that I told you about that are influencing our body weight, all of them to date, where we know what they do, have influenced food intake. We haven't found a lot of metabolic rate genes. Does it mean they don't exist? That's no, okay, it doesn't mean, because there's a famous study done in, um, in uh, Quebec by a guy named Claude Bouchard, and what he did was he took twins and actually kept them in a kind of like an experiment um, in, in a place for, for a few weeks. He fed everyone, all the twins, identical twins, ate exactly the same amount of food and exactly the same amount of exercise, but within the twins, so in, amongst the twins, they gained pretty much exactly the same weight, but between twins, they gained differing amounts of weight. So there is going to be differing metabolic rates. Why haven't we found a lot of genes for it yet? That's the, that's the question to ask. Because it's difficult to measure en uh, um, energy expenditure. Okay? So you can measure exercise-ish, there and about, but that only accounts for a third of our metabolic rate. The vast majority of our metabolic rate is genetically influenced, influenced by our body size, and we can't actually change that, that, that much. Um, but it's very difficult to measure. Food intake, you measure, these are calories going in, Energy expenditure on a small scale is easy to measure. Well, not easy to measure. You have to sit in an enclosed, sealed room. You've got to measure how much CO2 you breathe out versus O2 you breathe in, and you can calculate your actual metabolic rate. But you can't do that to millions of people easily. So once we get to the stage where we can measure metabolic rate a lot easier in millions of people, those genes will actually then uh, um, appear as well. But yes, they're there. We just haven't found too many of them yet. Mm -hmm. We have somebody from over here. Yes, there's somebody up at the side there. Thank you. Thanks for your talk, Giles. Uh, we've been talking about genes within our own DNA in terms of their influence on weight, but we also have as many genes within our gut bacteria as we do within our own DNA. Now, I know that there's been some studies that have shown that with uh, fecal transplants and other ways of changing our gut bacteria, that can have effects on IBS, Crohn's disease, but do we know what effect gut bacteria genetics have on our metabolic rate? And do we know if you, say, have a fecal transplant, do we have any evidence that that might change body size or, or ability to gain or lose weight? Okay, so this, this just so everyone is on the same page, but what, what this gentleman is talking about here is our microbiome, so the bugs that actually live in our large gut. And it's true, there are probably trillions of them. There, there are as many uh, bugs in us than, they are, than we have, as we have cells in our body. So this is, this is all true. And so therefore, a large amount of genetic material is going to be present in the, in, in, in the uh, microbiome. People ask me, is it good science or is it bad science, the study of the microbiome? I think it's new science, in particular when it comes to body weight regulation. Those studies you're talking about, now fecal transplant, which is this wonderful 
thing. Um, um, actually, within uh, um, so when you take the, the the poop up from someone else, it's called a trans. I'm not making this up. It's called a transpusion, right? <laughs> I'm not making it up. Actually, there's a, there, there's another op option where you actually purify the bugs. This is really disgusting. I cannot imagine people do this. You can purify it and put it in a capsule and actually eat it from, from here. This is called a crapsule. I'm not kidding you either. I'm not. I'm look it up, right? This is it's one of these things. Um, here's here's the answer. I think undoubtedly. Um, the bugs in your gut play a huge role in our health. Okay, so what do we know? We know that the bugs in our gut um, are a wonderful reflection of our health. Wonderful, okay? They're also a wonderful reflection of our environment and what we're actually eating. Okay, this we know to be true. Do they actually drive or cure disease? So will a transfusion actually help anyone before we go undergo such, such things? I think in, in mouse studies, a lot of it is done in mice, as, as you might imagine. I think the studies appear to be indicating this, but very, very few high-quality human studies have been done, and the ones that have been done indicate, at best, a neutral um, um, effect when it comes to body weight. That being said, there are probably too few studies to conclusively say uh, uh, one, way, one way or the, or the other. But undoubtedly, the bugs are going to play a big role in our health. Not sure what I expected from today, but probably faecal transplants wasn't. <laughs> was not was not one of them. Transfusion, guys. Transfusion, and crapsules. How could I forget? <laughs> um, there's two in the middle. They will take both of them. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much for the talk. Really interesting. Um, there's obviously been a long-standing concern about certain food groups causing changes in the body and, and altering the way the body grows, like refined sugar, for example. What's current thinking about? whether or not certain the products you eat can change the way your body processes um, food. Whether or not diets can change the way your body processes food? Yeah, they, there was a long-standing arm about refined sugar, that it would, if you took enough of that, it altered the way the insulin was processed in the body and changed that. And so, okay, will, will, sugar, will a huge bolus of sugar influence how we actually handle things? I think it will, and largely because, a couple of reasons, but first is caloric availability. So sugar in of itself, it, because... It's, very, it's our base fuel, so in other words, it goes in, it doesn't require any digestion at all if you have pure sugar, which I think you mean by refined sugar. But keeping in mind that, or just, just to be clear, all sugar is the same. It doesn't matter if it comes from fruit or it comes from Coca-Cola, okay? The only difference is that fruit has fiber, slowing the release of the sugar. If you suddenly have orange juice, orange juice has exactly the same amount of sugar as Coca-Cola, it may have some added vitamin C, I appreciate this, but, but it's actually just exactly the same, same, same amount of sugar. So let's just, and people say, is honey better for you than, um, you know, an algarve nectar and maple syrup? What is honey? Honey just happens to be bee puke, so therefore tastes slightly different. Uh, um, um, you know, obviously one is a sap of a tree and one is from a cactus, okay? Uh, or at least something cactus looking, but actually the sweetener is still, is still going to be sugar. Um, does it influence how we handle it? Largely because of its caloric availability rather than any big change. There is a debate out there, for those of you who are aficionados on it, about whether or not because it, insulin is particularly responsive to sugar, which it is, okay, that the, the sharp changes in insulin um, drives insulin resistance in order to do that. I don't know. I think it's controversial. I think people, there's some studies which show that insulin itself could be causing insulin resistance, the ability of your muscles and fat to respond to insulin by taking up sugar. I don't know. I still think that there is going to be a primary problem with sensitivity before it actually drives the change. But this is controversial. I'm not trying to be black or white about, about this. Lady in front. 
Um, just to follow up the, the question uh -huh. about the human microbiome, um, I wouldn't want people to go away thinking that, that uh, poo transplants are the only way that you can alter the human microbiome. What role do prebiotics and probiotics play in changing so, the, the, the composition of our microbiome? All right. So I think undoubtedly diet will change, the comp change your, your bugs. Okay, in, 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 the, in the gut, particularly huge, huge changes in diet. I think a lot of us have had the experience where we suddenly go on holiday somewhere and then we suddenly get exposed to a different microbiome, Mexico, or what have you. It's not food poisoning, but your guts then tell you something about it. It certainly happens to me. Okay, so if that's the truth, then therefore pre and, uh, and probiotics are certainly going to make a difference. What's interesting, though, I was at a, I was at a meeting once. Um, it's a scientific meeting, but a representative from Yakult was there. Okay? And so the, the, the representative was there and talking, and so I raised my hand. I said, I said how, mu how much bugs do you actually have to put into Yakult in order for, because you have to survive the cauldron of the stomach okay, before it actually makes it into the poop chutes, right? And, and into that area. It turns out they start with 64 billion colony forming units, 64 bugs per mil, in order for a few to survive into, in, in, into the gut. So I think you need to eat a lot of prebiotics and, and, and probiotics. I think the cheapest and most guaranteed way of improving your gut health is to eat more fiber and vegetables and as colorful as possible, so, which means that a, vari a variety of that. I think that's cheap. That's, it's not free. You've got to buy the vegetables. But, but, but it's definitely cheaper than necessary than Yakult. But I don't think there's any studies out there which show that pre or probiotics are bad for you, per se. You know, so so that, that would be the answer. But yes, transfusions are not the only way. There's a lot less extreme ways, which I would choose, uh, of changing your gut bacteria. Yeah. Right, more questions. Yes, somebody up at the, can you get the mic? There's somebody just up at the back there. Anybody over here in the queue? Yep, and two over here. I wondered how can we find out more information about our own propensity for finding things hard, difficult, um, or what we're more or less um, benefited by? Because obviously we just see ourselves, but we don't know our genetic codes, mm. and we don't know that information. What information can we get, and how do we get that? Okay. Just before you answer, Giles, oh, yes, can we just get that microphone tweaked around here, please, because we're running out of time, and I'd like to get both these other questioners. So that's a... That's a that's in, in, in many ways the $64 million question. There are, um, I think a lot of it is going to end up in the future in our genes, okay? because genes are empirical, they're there, they're easy to measure, they're easy to, 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 to actually assay. The, the problem is we're not there yet. Okay? Now there are a lot of companies that are already out there, like 20, 23andMe, DNA Fit, all of them are the same, in which they make a very good job of measuring your genes and assaying your genes in specific areas, but do a very bad job of interpreting it. Not because they're trying to lie, but because they're misinterpreting the data, trying to take population-level risk and trying to make it into an individual prediction. So I think at some point we will get to the point, 10, 20 years from now, of some predictivity based on, based on, some, based on some genetic test. Now, but there is a... So that's a very negative answer to, to, to actually give you. So how do you actually then do it if, the, if these genetic tests are not currently available? I think two things. I think if you got the first, it's very depressing, but if you actually just look at your parents, I know it's a terrible thing to say, when, when you just imagine anything about your parents, their shape, their size, the size of their bottom, okay, what diseases they have, that is free and far more predictive than any genetic test at the moment. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But, but second of all, if you have to lose the weight, for example, if you are honest with your own feeding behavior, so for example, do I respond to stress by eating or not? Do I prefer chocolate or fat, what have you? Then at least you have a fighting chance 
of controlling the environment you can control, meaning your household, about what you may or may not have within the house. So until we get to the point where genes can actually help in this uh, prediction, I think look at your parents and be honest with your own feeding behavior. And I think those two things together are probably going to be quite effective Still difficult, but quite effective in you at least putting together a cogent strategy to try and lose weight. Question over here somewhere. Is it on? Yeah. Okay. Um, thanks so much for coming today. It was very interesting. I was wondering what your views were on intermittent fasting, because I know you said there is no silver bullet. However, I know a lot of people anecdotally and even some authors seem to think like, what's his name, Dr. Mosby? My, Michael Mosley. Yeah. Yes, Mosley, sorry. That some people seem to think that the intermittent fasting, by consolidating the time you're actually eating, does, in effect, change your metabolism or something? Or is it just in your view that people are eating less? Thank For you. sure, intermittent fa Okay, intermittent fasting, I probably don't consider a fad. And the reason why is because it doesn't cost you more money to go on intermittent fasting. In fact, it costs you less, because, which is what should happen if you're eating less. Because I think it is definitely a very useful strategy to actually control the number of calories that you eat. For some people, who, 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 you know, they find it actually appropriate. Is there any magical addition beyond the caloric restriction? Um, okay. I think in animal models and my studies, it does appear to be the case that this is, that this is so. Once again, high-quality human studies are very difficult to come by, in particular because it's difficult to hold a randomized control trial because you cannot random, you cannot, there's no placebo for an intermittent, for a diet. This is the problem. Unlike there's a placebo for a pill, you can put white, you know, white powder, you can't pretend you're on a Mediterranean diet or intermittent fasting. Um, so the high-quality human data is not enough there to be conclusive. But would I be surprised given our evolution, given how we have evolved to eat, which is intermittent fasting, is probably the, the, the our most, we were never guaranteed any food, so there are going to be periods of time where we didn't actually have food. Would I be surprised if this uh, conferred some form of metabolic advantage? I wouldn't. It's just that the data is not there to conclusively say so yet, is the answer. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it at that, otherwise I'll get my daughters, and I've really just started this year, so I'd quite like to stick <laughs> So, um, Dr. Yeo will be around, we're going to go out that way, and he's going to be available to sign copies of the book. The book really is a terrific read, and... <laughs> Excuse me while he puts his gut away. Um, it, yes, it's, it is a terrific read, and it's very, very accessible, even to, and it'll be quite clear to you by now that I am not a scientist, but it's an exceptionally accessible book, and I couldn't have said that after a couple of glasses of wine. So I recommend it, and Dr. Yu, you to you warmly. Please join me in thanking him for his talk. Thank you for listening. Find out more about the Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and keep up to date on events, booking information and more by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search at edbookfest. The Edinburgh International Book Festival takes place every August in Charlotte Square Gardens.